Let me ask you, if you would please, to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we'll spend our time together this morning as we think about responding rightly to our sin. Uh, We wrapped up Amos last week, and I thought it would be helpful perhaps this week to meditate on what a right response to our sin would look like, as we saw so clearly what a wrong response to sin looked like in the nation of Israel in the book of Amos, as they rejected the word of the Lord and they really had no care for their sin whatsoever, except of course the righteous remnant. And so as we think about that particular subject, I know it can be uh, heavy to study a prophet, especially if you're not used to that sort of thing, especially if you prefer the sort of bubblegum pop version of Christianity. Uh, But it's something that we need to think rightly about. It's something that we need to dive deeply into. But in Psalm 51, what we have on the other hand is not a wrong response to our sin, but a right response to sin. Put on display for us by David, the man after God's own heart, who really by all accounts in Scripture, except perhaps for the denial of Jesus by Judas and Peter, puts on display for us the most heinous display of sin that we have by a faithful one of God in Scripture, and yet God himself called David a man after his own heart. It's a reminder for us that even as we are faced with the ongoing reality of our sin, the question is not whether or not we will continue to sin. The question is, how will we respond when we do sin? There's a a heresy called perfectionism or holiness. Uh, It goes by different names, but it's the idea that in this life you will will reach a point where you no longer sin. Now, the scriptures teach us clearly that we we, we should not strive to sin. In fact, we should constantly live lives of holiness. 1 John 2.1 says that he wrote that letter so that the churches, so that the people he was talking to would not sin, and yet... He tells them immediately following that, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we need to know that it is not whether or not we will sin. Perhaps you've discovered that this morning, you're still, you still woke up a sinner. The question is not whether or not we will sin. The question is, how will we respond when we do sin? I personally, as a pastor, have found so many Christians getting tripped up over this idea. The realization of their ongoing sin is so difficult for them to bear and they become so overwhelmed by the guilt of their sin, they forget that the point of their sin is to remind them of the cross of Jesus Christ and that their sin is to reflect their eyes not to settling upon themselves but to what Jesus Christ has done to forgive that sin. And so they just sort of stew in their own sin and they sort of become lifeless, they become joyless, they become overwhelmed with the reality of something that is true, they are sinful, but they stop there and they don't let that sinfulness then turn them to the one whose grace abounds where sin is present and where sin increases. So as we leave the book of Amos, I want us then to turn to Psalm 51 and think about what it looks like for a faithful child of God, in David's case, a faithful Israelite, In our case, faithful Christians, what does it look like to respond to our sin when we sin? Psalm 51 says this, follow along with me please as I read. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom In the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this example that we have in your precious word of what it looks like to respond rightly to our sin. As we study it now, we ask for your help to grab onto it with our hearts, with humble hearts that are ready to receive the nourishing food of your word. God, we pray that as we look at David's response, we would analyze our own response to our own sin. And we pray that the power of your word would increase our capacity to respond rightly, to please you in all things. We ask, O God, that we would have a greater awareness of our own fallen condition so that we would have a greater awareness of the mercy and the grace that you extend to sinners who deserve nothing but your wrath. We pray, O God, that as we think about our own sin, we would just as quickly and even more greatly think about your grace The very fact that as soon as David asked for forgiveness or or as soon as he confessed his sin, you rushed in to forgive his sin. As those who are now in Jesus Christ, we recognize that we have that very same situation. We have that very same blessing. That when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Teach us, O God, about your action in our salvation and even in our own sanctification. Set our hearts with a strong resolve to worship you in light of the grace that you have shown us. We believe what you have said, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have already begun to uncover the context and the setting for Psalm 51, but in case you were not listening, then let me just give you a flyover of the situation. You can see the context in the superscription, in the heading of the psalm there. It tells us that it's a psalm that's written by David, and it was written upon the occasion when Nathan the prophet came to him to confront him in his sin upon the time in which he came into or had gone into Bathsheba. We read the account of that happening. Nathan the prophet exercising great wisdom, not to just directly confront David in his sin, but to tell him a story, to get his emotions attached to the situation, to get him into a vulnerable vulnerable position so that he would be able to turn the finger on David and say, David, it is you who is worthy of death, just as you have said. You are the man, David. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you are familiar with what David did, but perhaps you're not familiar or perhaps you need a refresher. David was supposed to be out fighting in battles with the rest of his army. It was the time of spring when kings normally go out to war. It was warm enough to travel. It was dry enough to travel. And so David should have been out with his army. Yet, as I said earlier, he became comfortable and it seems complacent in his position, and he decided that the army could make do without him. David awoke from a nap one day as he was just sort of being lazy and doing whatever he wanted on that particular day, and he took a little walk on the rooftop. 
perhaps to analyze and assess his kingdom to see what God had given to him. And as he was upon that rooftop, he noticed a woman bathing, cleaning and purifying herself from her uncleanness, as the Bible calls it. And rather than bouncing his eyes away from, rather than going off of the roof and giving her the privacy that she deserved, David simply gawked and stared at her, reminding us of the enticement and the allurement of sin if you don't turn away from it immediately. He set his eyes upon her and he said, essentially in his heart, I have to have her. Or really specifically, David didn't treat Bathsheba as if she was a she, but rather David treated Bathsheba as, she, as if she was an it. A possession to be had just like anything else that David had. So he sent for her and she came. We have no account of what it was like for Bathsheba. I tend to think that Bathsheba was not necessarily a willing participant, yet you don't say no to the king of Israel. So she came, he lay with her, she went home. It was later discovered that she was pregnant, which was a serious problem because her husband Uriah was out with the army where he was supposed to be. And when Uriah would come home from battle, he would see the baby bump and he would realize, I wasn't here in order for that to happen. Who has been here in my bed with my wife? David was a smart enough man, although his sin made him stupid, as sin always does. But he was a smart enough man to know that he had a major problem. So he devised a plan. Rather than confess what he had done, he would seek to cover up what he had done. He sent for Uriah to be brought back from the field. He threw a feast for Uriah. He asked Uriah for an update on how things were going. And in David's thought, he would send Uriah home that night. Uriah would go home, and of course, he'd been away from his wife for a long enough time that he would lay with his wife, and then there would be the solution for what would soon be a baby bump. But Uriah was a man of honor. Uriah the Hittite was more honorable than David the Israelite. Rather than going home, he slept at the gate of the king's palace. Uriah thought, if the rest of the army is out in the field, there's no way I'm going home to live with my wife for the night. David woke up, found that it didn't work, and so he devised a greater plan of deception this time. He would throw another feast for Uriah, but this time David would get Uriah drunk, thinking that perhaps if Uriah was drunk, then he would lose his wits, he would go home in a moment of weakness, and he would lay with his wife and David's problem would be solved. But yet again, Uriah showed greater honor than King David. He didn't go home. He lay again at the gate of the city. So this time David knew that it, that was not going to work. And so rather than try to deceive Uriah into laying with his wife, he wrote Uriah's death sentence. And he rolled it up in a scroll and he sealed it with the king's seal and he gave it to Uriah himself so that Uriah would take his own death sentence and put it in the hands of Joab, the fairly wicked general of David's army. Joab read the letter. He knew that it would look very suspicious if only one man were to die in battle. And so Joab understood as a, as a general, he understood how to cover things up. He devised a plot that would send a portion of Israel's army close enough to the wall of their enemies, the Ammonites, and the Ammonites from the wall would then kill Uriah and kill a portion of the army. Joab sent word back to King David to let him know that the job had been done, and he told that messenger that if King David asked why he was so foolish to go to the walls of the city, didn't he know better as a commander? Joab said, and be careful to tell him that his servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. When David heard the news, he pretended as if he were uh, heartbroken over the issue. And he said, essentially, well, these things happen. It's war after all. Strengthen the army and kill the Ammonites. And David thought the whole thing was behind him. After Uriah was dead, he married Bathsheba so that it didn't look like what it actually was, but in fact, it looked like the generous act of a king who was simply marrying a woman who had been widowed because her husband had died in battle. But as we discovered, although no one else in the kingdom except for David's servants knew, the Lord himself knew. 
The Lord would not let David have his sin, but as he so often, or rather always does, he would in love confront his child who chose to live in their sin rather than confess that sin and make it right. And so Nathan, uh, Nathan the prophet is sent to David, and that was the account that we read earlier. As Nathan confronts David, David says one little sentence. Now, likely there was more said, and the Holy Spirit only wanted us or only rather needed us to know that one little thing. David says, I have sinned before the Lord. And the Lord did not tell him, you got to do better than that, David. The Lord did not tell him, do X number of Hail Marys and X number of Father Gods or whatever they are. The Lord did not tell him, if you really want forgiveness, you need to strap a bomb on your back and go into enemy territory. The Lord did not tell him, I, you need to wallow in your sin a little bit more. I don't think you feel quite bad enough. But rather, the Lord told him, the moment he confessed his sin, that you are forgiven. While in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we only get a little glimpse of what that actually looked like. Psalm 51 gives us, from a poet's perspective, David being a musician, what that contrition, what that repentance actually looked like. And so here in Psalm 51, I want to point out for us then four reflections of a right response to sin. Four reflections of a right response to sin. We are, of course, looking at David's response to his sin, but as we look at David's response to his sin, we can learn something about what our response, what our right response should be to our own sin. And most of these are going to be no-brainers to you. But isn't that the way that God so often works? Didn't the Apostle Paul himself say to the Philippians, to say the same things to you is no trouble to me and is good for you. And so as we look at these four reflections of a right response to sin, you're probably going to say, well, I already know that. But of course, the question when we deal with the Bible is, yeah, but are you doing that? So the first reflection of a right response to sin then is in verses one and two, and it is this, very simply, cry out, to God. When you sin, cry out to God. Verses 1 and 2 sort of give a summary and an overview of what David is doing. There's some overlap here in the psalm. It's not a neat, logical order of progression, but rather, as one commentator said, it's sort of what it looks like when a creative pours their heart out to the Lord. Some of us are more logical thinkers. We need a point A and a point B and a point C. Some of us are more creative thinkers and we sort of revolve around an issue in a poetic and artful way. David was an artist. And so he intermingles this idea of confession, this inter, he intermingles this idea of crying out for mercy, this idea of what it is that he needs from God in order to continue to serve God. And so from these two verses, we can glean, first of all, a description of David's situation. He uses three words to describe his situation. The first word that he uses to describe his situation is transgressions. You see it there at the end of verse 1. But you'll notice the word just before transgressions. My transgressions. The second word that he uses is iniquity in verse 2. And you'll notice the first word before iniquity. My iniquity. And at the end of verse 2, you'll notice the last word that he uses to describe his situation. Sin. And you'll notice again the word before sin. My. David knows the situation that he is in. The desperation that he is in. The word transgression is the word that describes a willful act of rebellion against God. It's when someone does something they know they are not supposed to do. David knew he was not supposed to do the things that he had done. It was required of the king to hand write a copy of God's law. David knew he was not supposed to do what he had done. And so he calls it what it is, a transgression. 
God says the line is here. And David says, thanks, but I'm going to step over it. Because what I want is on the other side of that line. And right now in this moment, God, what I want is more important to me than what you have said. The second word to describe his situation is iniquity. Iniquity means to be evil or perverted or to to be twisted. It means to go astray. It means to deviate and to veer from God's law and God's standard. And then, of course, sin. You may be familiar with the word sin as an archery term. Sin means to miss the mark. God says, this is the target that your life should be aiming at. And David says, "Ah, I think I'm going to aim here instead. So he gives us this these three words to explain to us the full-orbed nature of his corruption in sin. David is not hiding what he has done here. He is exposing what he has done here. But notice what he is doing. His desperation is communicated to us in, in what are four imperatives of urgent request. The first one is what begins the psalm. Have mercy or have grace. Be gracious to me, O God. The word here means to be in the recipient, to, to be receiving God's favor, God's meritorious favor. So sometimes it's translated mercy, sometimes it's translated grace. Essentially, what David is asking is that God would not give him what he deserves. What did David deserve in this situation? Well, you know what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, the wage of sin is what? Death. But you may not know what the law that David lived under also said. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. What did King David deserve in his sin with Bathsheba? He deserved to die. The king deserved to die. The law said he should die. And so David appeals to God for his grace and for his mercy. He asks, secondly, the second imperative is that God would blot out his transgressions. It's a a writing term, a a term that refers to ink on a page. It could really even be translated as to scrape off my transgressions. He's asking that God would wipe his slate clean to expunge his record, to not see that sin anymore. And that really leads us to the next imperative, the next request that David gives, although it's in the form of a command. That's the intimacy of the relationship that he has with God. In verse 2, he says to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. It's, of course, a laundry term, a term of cleanliness. David knows that his life is stained by his sin. And so he asks God to clean him up, to get rid of the staining effect of that sin. And The word, the final word there in the second half of verse 2, cleanse me from my sin, is related to that, though it's most especially used in a ceremonial cleansing of the temple and the sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood that David would be so familiar with. Put these all together, and what we understand is that David knows the depth of his sin, but notice what he does. He's not wallowing in his sin. He's crying out to God and he's appealing to God on behalf of God's character. Notice the word according to. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Why should God have mercy on David? Because he was the king? No. Because he had killed Goliath and slain so many others, enemies of Israel? No. Why should God have mercy on David? Not because of anything that David had done. Not because of anything who David was. But rather, because of the steadfast love and the abundant mercy or the overflowing compassion of God. 
David cries out to God knowing that he does not deserve anything from God. And so he doesn't appeal to anything based upon himself, but rather he appeals to God based upon God's own character. That's what you do when you're truly broken of your sin. That's what you do when you realize that you are inherently a sinner. That's what you do when you come to the point when you realize that you cannot save yourself, you cannot cleanse yourself, you cannot make yourself right, you cannot restore yourself. Only God can do that. And David knows that. So he cries out to God on the basis of the character of God himself. What would that look like for us today? What would it look like? It looks It looks like an empty tomb. It looks like a completed sacrifice. It looks like the slain lamb who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It looks like the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who himself said, it is finished. Why does God continually forgive us when we confess our sins? Not because we're amazing, not because he needs us, but he continually forgives us because John tells us, as I mentioned earlier in 1 John 2, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What are we so prone to do when we fall into sin? Or perhaps you fall into that same sin that you continue to fall into. What are we so prone to do in those moments of discouragement? Wallow most of the time, don't we? I did it again. I know better than to do this. I can't believe I have done this again. And yet, what, is the, what do we see in the example of David? Is he wallowing? He's broken. He's convicted. But he's not keeping his eyes upon himself. He's fixing his eyes upon the author and finisher of his faith. And so we learn then the first reflection of a right response to our sin is to cry out to God and specifically to appeal to him based upon the mercies that he has so richly poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the second reflection of a right response is of course to confess your sin. And this is what David turns to in verses three to six. He talked about his condition in verses 1 and 2, and he gets more specific in verses 3 to 6. In verses 3 to 4, he confesses that he has sinned, that what he did was wrong. And in verses 5 to 6, he confesses that he is a sinner, that his condition is corrupted by his sin, and in fact, that it has always been that way. And so first of all, in verses three to four, he says, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. What is he doing there? Now, he's certainly saying he knows it intellectually. He remembers what he had done, is he not? But that word for knowing is the same word that is used for when a husband knows his wife. Showing us that it is not just an intellectual acknowledgement of his sin, but what he's saying is, God, I feel the weight of my sin. He's saying, my conscience is so guilty. I know that I have blown it. And so much so that it's as if my sin is a movie that plays out constantly in front of me. This is what he says, it's always before me. And then in verse 4, he explains the gravity, the weight, the atrocity of his sin. That his sin was not just against people, but his sin most fundamentally and, and worst of all was against God himself. 
He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, we've gone through the sort of events of David's sin. He coveted. He was an adulterer. He was deceitful. And God even says that he was responsible for the blood of Uriah, which made him a murderer. There's at least four sins there that David did against other people, right? But who does he say he sinned against? Against God. He just goes straight to the top. He realizes that his sin, though it was against people, ultimately is against God himself. And that's the true atrocity of sin. R.C. Sproul called it cosmic treason. It's as if David is saying, there's no one else but me and you, God. And I've sinned against you. I've wronged you. David knows about the steadfast love of the Lord, doesn't he? But yet, even though he knows about the steadfast love of the Lord, he recognizes what, how the Lord feels about his sin, what the Lord says about his sin, how sinful his sin actually is. And you'll notice halfway through verse 4, there's a purpose clause. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What David is doing here is owning his sin, and in addition to owning his sin, he is owning the consequences of his sin. He's saying, effectively, God, whatever happens because of my sin, that just proves that you are just in your dealings. 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that that is actually the mark of real, genuine repentance that leads to life. 2 Corinthians 7. I heard you, Peter. That's okay. So often, in fact, ever since the garden, mankind plays the oldest game known to man, the blame game. It wasn't my fault. Well, if he hadn't have, then I would have never. Well, if she didn't say this, then I wouldn't have. But the reality is, every sin that you and I commit is the fault of one person. You and me in the case of my own sin. He's not blame shifting He's not accusing God of injustice. It's not as if he's saying, but God, why did you kill my child? I asked for your forgiveness. He's saying, effectively, God, whatever you decide is the consequence of my sin, I accept it because I'm deserving of it. He declares that God is blameless in his judgment. Whatever God determines to happen, he will gladly accept. Why does he do that? Isn't confession a reflection of genuine humility? Only the humble confess their sin. The proud blame other people for their sin. Or don't call it sin. Maybe they call it a mistake. Or they blame their situation. I can't help it. This is how I grew up. Well, if you knew how my family was, then you would understand why I do the things that I do. But in verse 5, what does David say about his condition? He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not bashing his mom here. He's simply recognizing the biblical reality that from birth, all of mankind is corrupted by sin. We are twisted and distorted by our very natures, which is why Jesus says you must be born again. There's a reason why you don't have to teach children to do things they're not supposed to do. There's a reason you have to teach them to do things they are supposed to do. 
Because we are all naturally bent towards sin and self-fulfillment. And so David recognizes the condition that he was born into, that he, is, that he sinned because he is indeed a sinner. And in verse 6, he explains that he knew better than to do what he had done. He says, behold, you, the Lord, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What does God want inside of his people? Truth. What does God teach to the hearts of his people? Wisdom. What is the outworking, the practical outworking of that wisdom that God teaches his people? Holiness. You see, there has to be an internal teaching from the Lord. There has to be an internal change. If what is inside of us is corrupted, it needs to be restored and renewed and made new and regenerated so that what we do on the outside is motivated by what is true of us on the inside. And so David understands that he sins because he is a sinner. And so we cry out to God for his mercy and grace based upon his own character. We confess our sin based upon the reality that the Bible teaches us that the reason we sin is because we are sinners. We are corrupted. And yet God restores and renews sinners. And this leads us then to the third reflection Verses 7 to 12 teach us to plead for renewal. Plead for renewal. There's a tone, there's a change in the tone in this psalm from here on out. Notice, you'll notice in verses 7 to 12 that he begins to, he begins to make requests of God. He's been asking God to clean him up and, and uh, restore him, but now he pours out his heart in request, teaching us that when you confess your sin, you don't just stay in that moment of confession. You don't just continually say, I'm such a wicked and awful person. You, re- you recognize that you are a wicked and awful person. You confess your sin, you embrace the forgiveness of God, and you begin to live in light of that forgiveness. What is he going to need in order to return to service to God? What is he going to need in order to live for God? Well, first of all, verses 7 and 9, he's going to need to be cleaned up. He's going to need to be cleaned up, certainly in God's eyes, but also he's going to need to experience in his own conscience the cleansing of God. So he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Notice the shall there. He makes the request, which is really another command, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a a plant that was used, the dried up version of it was bound together and was dipped into either water or blood, and it was then sprinkled upon either people or objects in worship, and it symbolized their cleansing. And so David is just appealing to his religious experience. Purge me with hyssop, and what will happen if God purges him with hyssop? I shall be clean. There's no doubt in his mind, is there? Wash me, he says, and I shall be whiter than snow. David understands that if he were to try to clean himself up, it would never work. But if God would clean him, it would work every time. If God were to purge him, he would be clean. If God were to wash him, he would be whiter than snow. Isaiah 118, you're familiar with, tells us that our sin creates a crimson stain. And yet the forgiveness of God cleanses us whiter than snow. This is what David is saying. Verse 8, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now notice he's moving now, not just to the personal experience of cleansing, but to a corporate experience of worship. Let me hear joy and gladness. 
How is he going to hear joy and gladness if he's all by himself? Well, I suppose he could say things that are joyful and glad. But David is speaking now about coming into the congregation. David is speaking now about corporate worship. David is speaking now about when the people of God are gathered to worship. When they would sing the praises of God, David says, I want to hear it again, Lord. Perhaps David was being hypocritical and gathering together with the people of Israel in worship. But even as he gathered together with the people of worship, with the people for worship, it was as if his ears were plugged up and he couldn't hear the joy and the gladness of the saints anymore because God himself had broken his bones. Who is responsible for the breaking of the bones, according to David? The Lord. It was the Lord that had disciplined David. It was the Lord that had put David in a physical condition of feeling his sin. David is explaining to us what spiritual depression looks like. He does so in an even greater way in Psalm 32, which you can look to later. David is teaching us, as the Bible continually teaches us, that the physical, or rather the spiritual reality of sin will manifest itself in a physical reality in your body. You have to wonder how much depression, how much anxiety, how many problems that people wrestle with continually, you have to wonder how much of it is because of unconfessed sin. I don't mean to say that all of it is. I don't know that. But clearly, God teaches us that at least some of it is. And so he wants to hear again the joy and the gladness of the saints around him singing. In verse 9, he repeats the similar idea that he showed us in verses 1 and 2. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Don't look upon my sins anymore, Lord. Erase them completely from my record. Get rid of them. Why would he want God to get rid of his sins? Because they were ever before him. Because unless God expunged his sins from him, then they were going to constantly haunt him. And so he asked God in his plea for renewal to clean him up. And then in verses 10 to 12, he asked God to make him new. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word create is the word that is always in reference to what God creates and what mankind could never create. It's the word that you find in Genesis 1 and 2. David is saying, God, demonstrate your creative power in the same way that you made all things to make me new. What does David need most of all? He needs a clean heart. Why would he need a clean heart? Because his heart was responsible for his sin. He saw something. He wanted it. He took it. Is David any different than any of us? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Teaching us that every sinful word we say is not just a problem with our mouth, but fundamentally is a problem with our own hearts. We need a new heart. And as those who have been recipients of a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ... We continually need that heart to be cleansed when we sin. David needs to understand from God that he has been fully restored. He needs his joy back. He needs his strength back. He needs to be put back into a position of service with the Lord if he is going to experience the life that the Lord wants him to live. And so he asks God to renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within him. He prays that God would make him committed to living the right way. 
That's what it means to have a right or a steadfast spirit. Lord, keep me committed to living a life of holiness. What will do that? Well, certainly asking for it will do that. But how will the ongoing, regenerating, renewing effects of that actually work in the life of the Christian? Through the word of God. It is the Bible that transforms us. It is the Bible that renews us. It is the Bible that shows us how to live. It is the Bible that motivates us how to live. It is the Bible that is the sword of the Holy Spirit. John Piper says that the mark of a true Christian is a passion to be changed. I think he's right. I know he's right. So then in that case, I would just simply ask you, do you have a passion to be changed? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness as Jesus taught so that you will be satisfied? That change comes as we ingest the word of God. But first, if you have no hunger for the word of God, you need a different change. You need a changed heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You see, David once desired to live in the light of God's word. He desired to follow God. But then when he sinned, that desire waned. And so what David needed was a renewal of that desire. Well, friends, the same thing is true for us. If you choose to live in an ongoing pattern of sin, then that will diminish your desire to live for God. It will decrease and negatively affect your passion to be changed and your passion to live for God. And if as you think about that reality, you think to yourself, I don't think I've ever had a passion to live for God. I don't think I've ever really wanted to be changed except for maybe have a bigger bank account and a better house, a nicer car. I mean, those kinds of changes I really would like. But I don't know that I've ever had a desire for a spiritual change. Well, my friend, if that's true for you, then I don't think that you have ever met the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to know that your sin problem is so severe that you have to be forgiven. Otherwise, the wrath that Jesus took upon himself for his people will be put upon you for your sins. And you need to know that just as easily as David confessed his sin and the Lord forgave his sin, you could confess your sin and the Lord would forgive you of your sin because Jesus has paid for it. And so he pleads with God for renewal. He says in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knew what happened to his predecessor, King Saul. In the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit would come upon the king and empower him for service. But we know before David was anointed to be king and the Holy Spirit came upon him, the Holy Spirit left King Saul. And in fact, the Lord afflicted him with an evil spirit. And so David knew that the Holy Spirit had been taken from Saul and he was pleading with God for that same spirit not to be taken from him, which is a prayer that no Christian needs to pray. Because if you are a Christian, then you not only have been filled with the Spirit, but Ephesians 1 tells us you have been sealed with the Spirit. Who can break the seal of God? No one. And dear Christian, I want you to know as well that even in your own sin, you cannot break the seal of God. 
You might feel dirty and corrupted. You might feel so ashamed of yourself that you can't admit something to someone else. But you can go to God and he will cleanse you and remove that guilt from your conscience. He will set you in a place where you can know the joy of the salvation that he gives to you. So don't hold on to it. I would plead with you, don't hold on to it. Confess it to God and ask him to renew you. Verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice he wants to experience the joy of salvation, but if he's going to experience, he needs God to restore it. David says, essentially, I know I can't muster up joy inside of myself, God. So I need you to restore it. This is what it looks like in John 15. Jesus says to abide in me. This is what it looks like to abide in him. Be completely dependent upon him. And yet at the very same time, do your part in that. He says, uphold me with a willing spirit. Help me to serve you, O God. So he cries out to God, he confesses his sin, he pleads for renewal. And then in verses 13 to 19, we see the fourth reflection of a right response to our sin. He resolves to worship. He does not wallow. He does not pout. He makes some determinations. In verse 13, he determines that he will teach other people Should God forgive him, then he will teach transgressors his ways and sinners will return to you, he says. Upon receiving the forgiveness of God, David has a mission. What is that mission? It's to teach transgressors God's ways and sinners then, as they know God's ways, will return to God. Specifically, what are the ways of God? Well, we could... Make a whole long list of all the commands of God, right? But here in this context, the way of God that David is referring to is the way that God loves to forgive sinners. You see, now as he has experienced the forgiveness of God, he's going to other people and he's teaching them, hey, listen, I know what you feel like and I know what to do about it. Confess it to God. Tell him about it. Cry out to him for his mercy. Plead with him, not in David's setting, but now in our setting, plead with him for the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from all your sin. Today we call that evangelism. We call it preaching the gospel. And we primarily, I think, think of that as, un, to, uh, as a, an action to unbelievers, which is not wrong in any way. It needs to be to unbelievers. But it also needs to be to Christians who are in sin. To Christians who have decided that maybe this Jesus thing isn't so great after all. To Christians who have allowed the cares of this world to squeeze out the joy of salvation that they once had. He takes up a role of teaching. And isn't this what people who have been cleansed do? I mean, if you think about the great weight of debt that you owe against God... And how he has not only completely erased that debt, but transferred into you, transferred to you, imputed to you, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is that not something to teach people about? Is that not something to say, hey, I know how to be right with God. I know how to be a child of God. I know how to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And it will affect you in such a way that you won't even care about physical riches. And so as he resolves to worship then, he resolves that he will teach others about the forgiveness of God. And then in verses 14 to 15, he resolves to sing the praises of God. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Blood guiltiness was what you are guilty of when you're a murderer. 
So he's referring back to his murder of Uriah. Deliver me from this blood that's on my hands, O God. And what will he do upon deliverance? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Who has to open David's lips here in verse 15? Well, if you don't look at the text, you're tempted to say, well, of course, David has to open his lips, right? But what does the text say? David says the Lord has to open his lips. Enable me to sing your praises and I will sing your praises, God. You know, that's a good prayer for us to pray as we drive here to corporate worship on Sunday mornings. God, it's been a busy week. I didn't get to eat breakfast this morning. I'm feeling a little flustered. We've got plans after the service. But remind me of what I am about to do with your people, Lord. Remind me that this is not simply just a get-together. Remind me, O God, that as we meet, we focus our attention on you. Open my mouth, O Lord, so that I can sing your praises rightly with your people. Let me hear the joy and the gladness of your saints singing the truths of the gospel. Truths that are guaranteed to be theirs, not because of what they have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. He resolves to sing the praises of God. I said this before, but I'm always skeptical of a Christian who doesn't sing. What is a right response to being forgiven? What is a right response to being delivered of your sins? Well, apparently the Bible says it's to sing. And you don't even have to have a good voice for that, praise God. Singing is the overflow of the joy of salvation. We sing because we're saved. And we're tempted not to sing because we've forgotten how great our salvation actually is. So he resolves to sing the praises of God and then in verses 16 to 17, he resolves to offer God a humble heart. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Did God not require Israel to sacrifice? Did God not require Israel to offer burnt offerings? He did. So what David is teaching us here is the principle, one of the principles that we saw in the book of Amos. God does not want sacrifice unless he has the heart of the worshiper. If it's a proud and lifted up heart, then the sacrifice means nothing. For us today, by God's grace, we don't offer sacrifices. We praise the one who was offered as a sacrifice. Yet we live lives of holiness. We create habits that cultivate that holiness so that God would ever increasingly get bigger to us and our worship of him would increase accordingly. God does not want our habits, therefore, unless he has our hearts. All our habits for holiness mean absolutely nothing if they aren't accompanied with, if they aren't centered upon a broken and contrite heart. David commits himself to a life of humility because he knows God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. One commentator, Alan Ross, says, the point is painfully clear. If people have unconfessed sin in their lives, God has no delight in their worship. And yet, David can delight in the joy of his salvation. God can accept his sacrifices. God can accept his worship 
simply because he confessed his sin. Verses 18 to 19, he then, we, he then resolves finally to intercede on behalf of others. Verses 18 and 19 sort of reverse verse, verses 16 and 17. On the one hand, when God did not delight in sacrifices, God would accept and, and appreciate, be honored by sacrifices. Verses 18 and 19 say, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David had just said that God did not delight in sacrifice. But then in verse 19, he says, when those things happen, when God does good to Zion, when he builds up the walls of Jerusalem, then he will delight in right sacrifices. So what gives? The hinge at the center is the broken and contrite heart. David understands that as the king of Israel, his sin will not affect only him. And so as he's been thinking about his own sin, his own offense against God, his own need of forgiveness, he now turns to think about the people whom he represents, the people whom God has placed him over. And isn't that a true mark of humility when you become so selfless that you begin to think of other people? You begin to think of the needs of other people. As king of Israel, God, or David asked God to do good to Zion, to Jerusalem, to build up the walls, to keep them safe, to keep them secure, because he knows that his sin can affect the entire nation. And so he pleads with God on behalf of other people. How would this look in the Christian life? I think if you think about it long enough, and you could certainly analyze the realities of your own life, our sin never affects only us, does it? We sometimes think we can sort of keep our sin in this personal box Well, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's really not that bad. Nobody else knows about it. It doesn't really affect anyone else. But the reality is, sin always affects the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We need to understand that if one member of our body is in sin, it does affect the entire body. This is the need for loving correction and loving restoration. For us to put our arm around a sinning brother or a sinning sister and say, hey, listen, there's a problem here. We need to fix it. We need to help each other to grow in godliness. And so we see then in Psalm 51, these four reflections of a right response to sin. He cries out to God, he confesses his sin, he pleads for renewal, and he resolves to worship. He starts in the valley and he ends on the mountaintop of God's grace. Steve Lawson tells the story of an editorial in the London Times that appeared many years ago, written by, uh, that asked a question which G.K. Chesterton, a friend of C.S. Lewis, responded to. The writer of the article, the editorial, asked what is wrong with the world today and asked for people to write in response as he collected their answers. The writer researched various articles and reported on various moral and social ills that he observed and then asked the reader for their thoughts. He sort of gave his own thoughts and then said, contribute to me. Let me know what you think is the problem. No doubt the best explanation of what's wrong with the world today came from G.K. Chesterton, the friend of C.S. Lewis. His letter to the editor read this, simply, Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world today? I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. He understood what David understands. He understands what the Christian has come to understand. That we are inherently corrupt from our birth. And yet God loves to save sinners. He loves to restore them. He loves to renew them. He loves to use them. After all, if God didn't use sinners, 
who else would he use? My prayer is that as we think now about rightly responding to our sin, this would be a helpful guide for you if you are perhaps in sin yourself, if you perhaps know someone who is in sin, or maybe even a little bit later this week when you find yourself to be in sin. We have a gracious God who will forgive us based upon the commitment of love he has made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for the love that you have extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your love is not like our love, that your love is a steadfast love, a love that never fails, a love that never fades, a love that is secure based upon what your son has done for us. We thank you, God, that you have brought us into the realities of Christ and his accomplishments. And we thank you that you have sealed us until the day of redemption so that we would never again be cast out of the realities. We would never even be able to pull ourselves out of those realities. We pray, O oh God, that you would open our eyes in greater ways to behold the wondrous truths of the gospel so that we would live lives that are pleasing to you in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask the ushers now to come forward for our offering this morning. As we collect our offering, now is a good time to put that prayer request in the plate as well and to reflect upon what God has taught you through Psalm 51. Let me offer a word of prayer and then the men will pass out the plates. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your goodness and your mercy, for all that you have provided for us. We ask now as we give to you that we would do so with cheerful hearts, that you would use these gifts to build your kingdom. We pray, O oh God, that you would keep us constantly aware of our need to make disciples, of our need to preach the gospel. Keep us ever aware that that often comes with a financial cost. Help us to be generous in our giving so that we would be pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.